the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You ever wonder what your kids are learning in school? Oh, I don't necessarily mean things such as the history of the country and how to read and write and things of that sort, all important to be sure. But what are the other things that they're learning in school? You know what I mean, Mom and Dad, the other things? School's in session, and some things are taking place that perhaps are going to shock parents. It is incumbent, I think, on all of us to understand, to to help bridge the so-called generation gap and know what our kids are learning, how they're feeling, and ultimately how they're being influenced by both their peers and even by the educators. With some insights to help us all wake up to the realities of what kids are learning both in and outside of school, Annie Brainer joins us. He's a teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on and how to talk about it, published by NAV Press. And Andy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on the show. Parents frequently certainly will focus on things like, are you getting your homework done? What do your grades look like? Things of this sort. All important issues, to be sure. And yet, it's what's not on the official curricula sometimes that we ought to most be worried about. Right. We... uh we, I spent uh, two years uh, researching this book uh, in the hallways of the high schools across America and and actually came up with some pretty alarming uh, <laughs> results. Uh, I found that uh, there's a there's a there's an undercurrent of sexuality happening in our in our high schools today that is akin to the sexual revolution of the 60s but it's all being done kind of under the radar and so I would encourage parents uh, just like you said there's a lot of things we can see that we expect kids to learn from school, but it's the relationships that they're having uh, in the hallways of the high school, when school's over, on, on weekends, that, that, we sh- that we should really be concerned about. All right, here's a fact check, uh, reaching out to some of the FAQ that parents ought to be asking of their teens, or at least aware of. Uh, let's begin with the first point that you address, and that is that there is significantly more sexual activity going on than most parents are aware of. In fact, according to a CDC study, half of high school students have had sexual intercourse and 14%, I mean, you know, it's not far from being one out of every five, have had relations, physical relations with four or more partners and we're talking about kids still in high school? 
right? I was in the school, um, and I won't mention the name of the school, but I was. I have a chance to go into some of these schools and and do assemblies and talk to students about you know faith and and what they're really thinking about faith and what they're thinking about life and 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 I would I I commonly get a group of kids together just to ask about their dating relationships and I and I just say look, bottom line, you're not going to see me again in three days, so you know you can be honest with me and I'm not going to go tell your parents what's going on, but tell me what's going on in the dating relationships in this high school. And as we're sitting around the table, uh, one of the one of the guys hop, popped piped in, and he he said, uh, "Andy, here at our school, it's just like we we just hook up with each other, you know, every day. And so, and, and hook up has a different meaning than maybe some parents might think that it is. They have a they have a, a location that they'll go to." And they'll literally engage in physical activity, and and when it's over, it's just kind of like they just kind of went and played basketball in the backyard. They <clears throat> they come back to school and they say, you know, they they give each other high fives, and wasn't that fun last night? And and then the next night they do the same thing over and again. And so each night we have teenagers that are out just hooking up with each other. And and and, and even worse, so not only is any sense of impropriety gone or shame or guilt uh, apparently just completely uh, cast aside, but then. And isn't it so that at certain levels we see, Andy, the influence of so-called modern-day social media uh, that is helping exacerbate all of this? Because now, you know, not only are the kids are hooking up, and then they're bragging about it on Facebook or, or texting each other, if not with the gory details, even with photographs. Oh, with the gory details and photographs. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. In fact, I'll get I'll get emails from parents that, that sneak on their kid's computer, and they'll download the latest Skype conversation that they're having. And it would—I mean—it just makes you blush to think about the language that kids are using and the and the uh, just the explicitness of what's going on. So we've gone from being concerned about our kids potentially being exposed to pornography in the seedy parts of town to now actually creating the pornography. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And most parents, I mean, as much as you talk to teens, you also talk to their parents. What's the reaction? I mean, you're speaking upwards of, of 80,000, 100,000 teens every year. You have a lot of impact and, and opportunity to talk to the parents. When you when you share some of these details, much as we are here this afternoon, what's the reaction? I find that, that there's a... There's a there's a lot of parents who would would come and they'd say, obviously they'd be in the camp to say, oh, that's not my kid. My kid would never do that. My kid would never be involved in that. Uh, and then you have some parents that that say, okay, I see the issue. I see what you're doing now. What do you, what can we do to encourage our kids? And especially in the Christian communities, when I go in and start talking about dating and relationships, um, there are some honest parents that go, hey, look. Um, we need help. Uh, we need we need folks that can bridge the gap between the teen relationship and the parent relationship. Help us coach our kids. And so you, you know you kind of get both sides of the spectrum. But but I tend to focus on the ones that are going. All right, we we get it. We know our kids are not perfect. We know our kids could be involved in this. Teach me how to coach my kid to have a successful relationship in high school. A lot of parents feel overwhelmed by this, a sense of perhaps being out of control because of the number of counter-influences to what they're trying to teach their kids. I mean, I would assume parenting today is as it was when I was a kid, that most parents want to be able to set up an atmosphere in the household that that establishes and then helps to encourage uh, certain standards and and a standard for living, a moral code, etc., etc. Mine happened to, to, to come out of the church, but, you know, somehow some sort of a... 
a decent code of behavior that parents are not only having to compete with with um, the counterculture that is out there that's running contrarian to what they're trying to teach their kids and values in the home or or in church and then on top of all of this i bet there's a huge frustration because just parents feel as if there's little they can do right but i think um it's easy sometimes for parents to just defer to all the other influences, but the research is showing us now when you ask kids about the most influential people in their life, in other words, what are the most, what are the most um, prominent voices in your life today, the research that's come out say parents still hold the number one spot in developing a worldview of that teenager. And, and to most parents, I can say, you know, how many times have we been driving down the road with our kids in the back seat and we say something, uh, you know, our kids are acting up or something, and we say, be quiet, stop touching each other, and all of a sudden this memory of you being in that car kind of comes through, and you remember your mom or your dad saying those things, all to point to uh, the things that we learn about parenting often come from our parents. And so I often encourage parents to think about if you have the number one influence in your child's life, and secondly is friendships, peer relationships, and then third, the research comes out and says that the media holds the third position. So, so if you've still got the number one spot, then it's time for parents to start really parenting. It start, it's time for parents to really think about, you know, when is my kid on that computer and who are they talking to on that computer and who are they texting you know when they're at the dinner table and 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 start taking control and and be a parent in your house my goodness you're still mom and you're still dad and you have a responsibility to to rise up and raise your kids if you've just joined the conversation, Andy Branner with us tonight, teen expert, author of an expose on teen sex and dating, what's really going on, and how to talk about it. We'll come back to more of the insights and our conversation tonight. If you want to join us with a comment or a question, join in. Toll-free number is 888-FOR-KFAX. That's 888-367-5329. A timeout. Back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Andy Branner with me tonight, guest expert on teens, author of a new book called An Expose on Teen Sex and Dating, What's Really Going On and How to Talk About It. You know, one of the other big uh, shockers here, I think, for a lot of parents is the amount of alcohol and drug abuse going on. Uh, There was a Department of Health and Human Services substance abuse report that came out that found that order over a quarter of teens, 25 have engaged in uh, alcohol abuse under the age of 21, and 17% have gotten engaged in so-called binge drinking. There are folks listening to this program right now, Andy, who have never binged drank in their life, let alone doing it before the age of 18. Yeah, yeah. The uh, those are the old those are the old teenage adages, right? If we can only get them to stop drinking and stop smoking weed and stop having sex, then then everything will be fine. But but what we found is that those are just merely a veneer. All those issues, those classic teenage issues, are just uh, those are the, the surface issues of something deeper going on. And what we find those things to be true out here, we've got a little place called Kivu out in Colorado. We have over a thousand students every summer that come out here to do. A Adventures in Colorado, and 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 during that time, we get a chance to really live life with students. 
And so what we find is that most students that are, that are just trying to make their journey through high school are struggling with significance. And, and it might not just be a teen issue. It could be, I mean, it's probably just all of us, right? We all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we've got somebody that will listen to us. And, and, and the more that I find kids that are engaged in activities, as you mentioned, the more I find somebody crying out going, who in this world is going to value me? Who's going to be with me? And I, and I would say, and I say this every time I get in front of an audience, the number one issue in the teenage world today is not drinking, it's not sex, it's not drugs. The number one issue is loneliness. They're walking through life and they just feel all alone. You know, and the amazing thing to that message is that's kind of the description of the the human condition overall, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, that's it. And I think I find the more that I can, when I bend down to look a student in the eye, and I and I give them the value that they deserve as being human, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they think, "Wow, somebody, somebody cares for me." And if they can do that at home, if a mom and a dad can do the parenting thing in a way that they really invest time in the things that teenagers like to do, and they really focus on valuing their students. Sure, there's disciplinary things. Surely, there's correction things. Surely, there are issues where we have to get in and mentor and coach. But when I place value in my teenager, he longs to be with me. He wants to be with people that find him valuable. And it goes back to the old age-old adage that oftentimes the best thing that you can do to sort of inoculate your kids against all that the world has to offer out there is just to spend some time with them. And if you use the excuse, oh, but I'm putting in 60-hour work weeks to earn enough money so we can take the big vacations and live in the bigger house. I'm doing it all for my kids. In the end, you're going to find out that uh, uh, the opposite effect of what you were hoping for it comes to fruition. That's it. And I tell kids, I tell parents a lot, you know, when my kids got to the age where they could, they could do Legos and they started stacking Legos, uh, they would sit in the living room for hours just stacking these things and making these different concoctions of Lego buildings things and stuff and I gotta tell you Craig I hate Legos I just don't think that way I have no patience I don't I don't I can't put the six block with the four block with the two block but it was the times that I sat in the living room and said you know what even though I don't like doing this, I know you love it, and to, to spend time with you, I'm going to do the thing that you like to do. Those were the relationships where, where relationships started being made. That's when they started seeing, hey, Dad really cares about us because he wants to spend time doing what we want to do. So I encourage parents all, all the time, you know, if you can find that thing, if it's video games, don't, don't just turn the, the Xbox off. Maybe sit down with your kid and say, hey, teach me how to do this. I'd love to do this with you, and get into their world. And once you get into their world, then these conversations about drinking and drugs and sex and relationships at school and academics and all the different things that they're involved in start just bubbling forth without you even really having to ask any real hard questions. You're not suggesting to try to be a peer or a friend. I mean, you can be a friend to your kids, but, you know, your, your kids will have plenty of friends in their lifetime. They're only going to have one mother and one father. Sure, sure, yeah. I think the friendship thing is 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 a different term maybe than I want to invest my time where you find time. And and I'm going to show value to you the way that you need to feel valued. And and if we can do that, man, it's, I'm telling you, it changes the way parents and teenagers interact together. Let's grab a couple of calls. Here we're going to go to Lori in San Jose. Lori, come on in with your comment or question for my guest tonight, Andy Branner. Hi. Um, I um have taught high school and different age group students and um, I found that uh, you know sex is 
a big problem as far as you know student student interactions becoming more casual but does your book address um, uh, you know faculty uh, becoming involved in promoting sexuality like uh, what Governor Brown did uh, and the legislature did as far as um, SB I think it's SB forty eight. Forty eight, yeah, and you know, and 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 even the bigger equation there, Lori, is the fact that we've seen so much of almost substitute parenting going on in the classroom. And and some of it, I think, to be fair, Andy, a few parents kind of fell on their swords, didn't do their job, and then some, I think, well-meaning but over-enthusiastic folks at the the educational level said, well, look, if the parents are not going to teach their kids right from wrong and and sex education, we'll take care of that for them. The problem is, you know, fast forward 40 years after so-called sex education made its way into the classroom, now all of a sudden it's moved from, you know, just good health information to suddenly uh, promoting an agenda. Andy? Right. So the book, to, to speak to your question directly, Lori, the book does not address the public school's responsibility or not responsibility. So I'll speak just off the cuff in, in, in the research that I found. It speaks more to what Craig was talking about. We see administrators all over the country who are standing up saying we need sex education in the classroom, and we find parents that are trying to opt out of those things in, in a way that they say, hey, it's our responsibility, we're going to teach them. Well, let me just give you a little, uh, a little story. We had a guy that was sending his kid out to our place here in Colorado, and he said, are you guys going to teach sexuality out there? And I said, well, yeah, we have a whole course on dating and sexuality as it relates to the Christian worldview and what, what, is, it, what is God's intention for us in developing a relationship. Well, the man was well-intentioned on the other end of the phone, and he said, he said, well, I'd like my daughter to opt out of that class. And I said, well, that's great because we don't want to do anything that offends parents. We want to make sure we're locking arms with parents. We want to do what you want to do. I said, could you tell me a little bit, like, why? Why don't you want her in that class? And he said, well, we're going we're gonna to teach her those things at home, and we just want to reserve that conversation. To which I responded, incredible. That's incredible. That's a great idea. Thanks for being good parents. And then I said, if you don't mind, might I ask, how old is your daughter when she's coming out here? I'd just like to know, you know, where she's going to fit in, where she's going to play, how we can identify her. He said, well, she's 15 years old. <laughs> to that I said, Brother, I don't mean to step on your toes, but that ship has already sailed. Yeah, you're 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 going to have the conversation. Yeah, well, that you should have been thinking about that probably 15, probably you know, eight years ago. Our research shows that the average first sexual experience happens at 12 years old. Yep. There you go. And that that is that is the stark reality that I think a lot of parents need to deal with. You know, even as we think about how we were parented, Andy, and wish to apply some of those lessons to how we in turn become parents and parent our own kids, we've got to realize this clock is moving faster than any of us realize. It's it's fast, and that, that statistic of 12 years old means that 50% of them parents are younger than 12. And so we've got to, if we're going to stand up and take the, the mantle of teaching our kids about sexuality, then we've got got to start those conversations as awkward as they might seem earlier and earlier some good insights if they want to get copies of the book andy it's available i would imagine through your website as well as amazon.com yes sir yes sir amazon.com uh andybrainer.com is my website or you can just flip over to navpress.com uh, and you can go down to the teenage section and it's highlighted there all right an expose on teen sex and dating what's really going on and how to talk about it information again on andy's website at andy brainer a-n-d-y-b-r-a-n-e-r.com andy thanks for the time and the insight 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It might have been the loss of a parent while you were very young. Maybe you have a dim memory of an event that you've struggled to keep hidden in a dark corner of your mind for all of your adult life. You struggle with lack of motivation at times, fear, bouts of depression. Maybe there are times that anger boils up to the surface to the point that you feel you can barely control the rage. You have a suspicion about what drives these moments of emotion and anger and frustration and fear, and yet you don't know what to do about it. You're terrified of the thought of sharing it for perhaps someone else will think you're either lying or have lost your mind. And at times you feel as if every aspect of your life is gripped with fear and you are totally paralyzed. From a professional standpoint, you might be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, a phrase we hear quite often, and yet what does it exactly mean? How are people diagnosed with it? But most importantly, how do you escape from it? How do you deal with the reality of your past and break free from that to allow you to move on to finding peace and liberty in your life for perhaps the very first time? Joining me today in the studio, two authors. The book is called Love Letters from the Edge, Meditations for Those Struggling with Brokenness, Trauma, and the Pain of Life. With us is returning once again, Shelley Beach, multiple award-winning co-author, and she's written, by the way, more than 15 books, and she's co-founder of the PTSDperspectives.org, providing consultation services on post-traumatic stress disorder in medical, mental health, educational, criminal justice, professional, and faith based settings across the nation. Also joining her, a name that is certainly very well known to listeners of this program going back many, many years. In fact, you hear her name mentioned at the end of every program because we have to blame somebody. (laughs) Our producer, Wanda Sanchez. Wanda, in addition to being a book author, is the executive producer of this program and the executive publicist at WLS Communications, a public relations and media consulting communications firm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She also is the co-founder of PTSDperspectives.org. And ladies, welcome to the both of you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Wanda, we're turning the tables on you. Yeah, Normally, like, how scary. you're bringing the guests in and you're worried about yep. what the guests are going to do and coming back and saying, so how did it go? Yep. And today you get to be in the hot seat. I am in the, I'm the victim today. <laughs> <laughs> and Shelly, of course, has been a, a dear friend for many years and a frequent guest on this program as well with many of the books that you have written. And it's great to have both of you join us to talk about a topic that, quite frankly, impacts the lives of more people than I guess most of us really realize, yes. largely because many of the people that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, or the aftermath, I guess we'll call it, of bad things that happen in life, um, don't quite understand what it is. They don't know how to articulate it. They just know that they're not happy, they're frustrated, they're fearful, and it can run the gambit of impacting everything from your ability to go to work every day to your ability to carry on healthy relationships to even your ability to have a relationship with God. Yes. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit first, Wanda, about the purpose behind the book, the motivation. How did this come into being? 
Well, um, we, Shelly and I had um, become friends um, in a, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, but it's, Lifeline was like the reason we be, we met. I, I booked her for Lifeline for um, a series of interviews about caregiving. And during this time, we didn't really speak on the phone very much. Um, we did email. I tell her what time the next segment's going to be on. Anyway, through this little bit of communication, we became friends. And um, she was actually the one that ended up telling me that she thought she believed I had PTSD and that I perhaps needed to get some help. So after I did get, I'm skipping over a lot, but after I did get treatment, um, we were traveling and speaking um, about trauma, about PTSD, and about um, my, you know, the treatment that I went through, and not must not so much about the treatment, but about the results of the treatment. Um, and we were everywhere we went, everywhere we went, people were asking us, "Please write a book. Please write a book. Please, we need we need to read what you have to say." You know, we would read it, and um, and so listening to all those voices we we kind of knew we, we wanted to do that um but we also knew that um we wanted to try and be very very careful um because it could be you know a book that that could um probably evoke or provoke some feelings you don't want to have mm-hmm. <laughs> so we knew we were going to have to kind of find a balance there there's that balance between addressing the issue and not creating a trigger point exactly right. and I guess even for for the potential reader to whom you were trying to give a sense of hope and reassurance right. and, and and for a lot of people the trauma of discovering that there's trauma right. and maybe you can speak to that because there's that sense sometimes that we've gone through an experience that may be 10 20 30 years ago right that we've spent such a lifetime trying to push down, ignore. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have taken blame for it. It might be a case of, of abuse or abandonment, variety of issues that happened maybe at childhood. Yeah, right. And a child can't process, can't understand, can't reason, well, right. daddy hits not because he hates me, but daddy hits because he has a drinking problem, and he has a drinking problem because his father had a drinking problem, right. and therefore right. that's all he knows because the sins of the parents are visited upon the next generation. Right. A five-year-old can't understand that. Yes. So a five-year-old does what a five-year-old knows to do, and that either is takes all the blame on, I must have been a bad boy or a bad mm-hmm. girl, or so stuffs it down. Mm-hmm. That this unresolved issue and conflict and pain never gets addressed and yet manages to bubble its way to the surface okay. in a lot of other ways. Right. Well, there, there's trauma in everybody's life. And there's there's little T trauma, you, you know, which are, you know, the painful things that happened. And then there's the big T trauma that actually disrupts the way the brain works. And trauma with a capital T is any event that overwhelms your brain's ability to function and work and it and it actually causes that fight or flight response and during that type of event uh, there's a chemical wash that comes over the brain and the dual brain function of the right and left hemispheres of the brain with the right side doing one one role and the left side doing another the right side's primarily creative and language in pictures and images and sights and sounds emotions. and sense and emotions and then the left side of the brain doing linear function of putting things in time sequence and the more logical those two functions which are always going on simultaneously they get broken apart during a, a big T trauma and you freeze and um, 
so the linear yeah, side, the linear shut side shuts down, and so what we're left with with is a half processed experience, and so um, what we end up going through life with is coping mechanisms of how to deal with this mess that's in our brain because we end up with um, with, with having all these triggers that cause this to replay over and over again, and unfortunately, the coping mechanisms are the behaviors that are commonly. You know, addictions or hoarding or or um, avoidance or um, all kinds of acting out things that we feel so guilty about all of our lives. And we may have had from the time that we were small or obsessive compulsive disorder or all kinds of things. And sometimes we don't know why they're there. For instance, you may have had a medical experience when you were two or three years old that caused you to have this, this terrible traumatic medical response because... You know, PTSD is not just linked to abuse. It can be linked to medical experiences. It can be linked to being in a car accident. It can be linked to something that you saw or even experienced in the womb, believe it or not. So um, there are people who don't even recognize what's causing them to have certain patterns of behavior. And um, I had just been doing some investigation about PTSD because of things that were happening in my family to some of my family members and myself. I'd been um, sexually assaulted multiple, multiple times, plus I'd had other experiences that were traumatic, and I was trying to figure out whether anybody could, um, you know, find help. (laughs) And um, so that's why when I met Wanda, I had some recommendations for her regarding a place where she could go and not get counseling. And not just go and talk about it, but go get um, treatment that would actually help address the PTSD itself. So, Is it important to make that connection, to reconnect those dots? Because there is, as you say, a disconnect that becomes part of the coping mechanism. And sometimes enough time passes that even the acknowledgement as to what is actually behind the trigger. Yes. There might be other things that trigger, mm-hmm. but what's behind the trigger? Is it important to yeah. make that beginning, connection the beginning, middle, and end of the story. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good. Well, like for me, uh, there was a gun put to my head, and um, one of, one of, in one of my assaults, there was a gun put to my head, and the man told me he was going to blow my head off and, and kill me um, if I didn't do what he told me to do. And I fought him. And so all during that time, I was waiting for the gun to go off and my brain to be blown off, I, my head to be blown off or whatever. So um, I I have a, a, a trigger response to loud noises. Um, a, a, a quite, a startle response. Quite, yeah, a startle response. But until I understood where that came from, um, the startle response was much stronger than it is now. And it could, it could send me into um, a... A dissociation, yeah, Keep into dissociation, yeah. yeah, where I would, I would startle, and then I would just kind of drift away and um, just kind of be in a dazed state of mind. That doesn't happen now. I'll, I'll startle, but I, I don't go away um, because I know what it is. I know what it's linked to, and I've had some trauma treatment. So, and so when you process a trauma, when you finally start to tell the truth mm-hmm. about the story, um, because see. Um, just the, what what you have in your head, the, the memory or whatever's starting to come up for you, if it's not, if you don't have it all yet, you know, of, of why or that's very important because 
tra- what trauma also does, because it shuts down one side and this side's going crazy, it just talks mess to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lies, so it, lies, it lies. It talks down to you. It never talks like, you're fabulously wonderful. No. It's, you know, you're stupid and you're ugly or whatever. It just picks up this, I don't even know how to how to explain that. You are you are ruined. You you're are ruined. You are trash. You are all these ter- terrible so things. So when you start to tell the truth to yourself about really what happened you know that that this bad thing happened but the bad thing isn't you mm. right you know the bad thing is not you it's a bad thing but that bad thing is not you and you get to actually that's the truth so when mm-hmm. you start to process but you've never heard that because it's always been in your head you never said it out loud mm-hmm. you know so now the 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 people that were helping me learn to do this you know we're, we're telling me how we're showing me how to um how to, how to process trauma without re-triggering myself. They didn't re-traumatize me. Um, there is There are ways to process trauma that are not painful, that don't have to take a million years, um, and, and, and that are successful. Let's right. talk about some of that when we come back after a brief timeout. With me today in studio, Shelley Beach and our producer, Wanda Sanchez, a look at love letters from the edge as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation on this edition of Lifeline. We have with us today in studio authors Shelley Beach and Wanda Sanchez. You say, I know those names. Well, you should. Um, Shelley has been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. And Wanda, of course, has been our producer for a week or two. A week 15, or two. 20, 15, 20 years, something like that. We've been, on, we've been on the air 28 years, and I think mm-hmm. um, certainly the lion's share of the 28 years. Together, they've written a new book called Love Letters from the Edge. It's released by Kriegel Publications, available usual suspects amazon.com also through the website ptsdperspectives.org Wanda just before the break you were mentioning about the importance of truth telling yes so oftentimes in a traumatic experience if it's one for example we have been on the receiving end of abuse the perpetrator will tell lies And those lies are a way to try and avoid the truth, right. dealing with their own truth, yep. yes. stuffing things down to never have to be accountable for their mm-hmm. actions. And then after a while, we begin to understand that if you know the lies sometimes are a part of that coping mechanism. And we know certainly from the spiritual dynamic here, one of the disconnects that I think we need to very importantly reconnect for somebody that is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder is the fact that the originator of these lies is very Satan himself. That's absolutely right. And that's the the subtle thing is that while you're dealing with the big parts of the trauma, the accident or the, the sexual abuse, whatever, the the lies that have been laid every day, really, since that trauma, you know, they kind of get away if you're not looking for that. Right. And if you don't know that telling the truth is honestly going to be a way to find freedom, th- that's why so many programs don't, don't really work. I mean, you know, um, they're dealing with the wrong things. We watch, uh, have you ever seen Hoarders or mm-hmm. Celebrity Rehab or any of those things we've seen on TV where they clean you up, they take away the drugs, they clean, get, clean off alcohol, they, they clean the house of the hoarder, they, and then they go away. And this person who's left with 
no drugs, no alcohol, and a clean house, that's like it's a worse. death sentence. They become worse. Yeah, of course. They they didn't deal with the trauma. Well, they didn't deal with what brought them there. So they're going to do it again. You know, it's good. they're going to end up right back there again. But had they processed the trauma of the of the person, and that doesn't mean talk about it. It means getting these two parts of the brain to work. So stopping the cycle absolutely requires going back to what you were saying earlier, Shelley, and that is the the cognitive disconnect that happens as the coping mechanism at whatever yes. point the trauma is made. And I think it's right. important to point out this is not just for children; this right. happens for adults as well. Mm-hmm. It is the chemical reaction. It is the neurological reaction. Yes. It is the fallen nature sin reaction yes then when we try to deal with the trauma apart with putting in perspective of god right there's also that huge faith component because you are not when you are experiencing when you've experienced this big t trauma especially if it's come through through sexual abuse or or if it's come through um, domestic violence or in your childhood having witnessed certain kinds of things or experienced them, you're not going to feel like the truth is true for you. Um, As Wanda put it, she was the asterisk in the Bible. Mm. All those things were true for everybody else, but they weren't true for her. Because that's the way your emotions are when when you feel, um, when, when you've experienced certain kinds of trauma. So... You have to come to the point where you're willing to say, um, I'm going to, um, well, at one point I said to her, she was like, I, you know, I, I don't have any faith. I don't, I don't have any hope. And I said, well, I got a bucket. I'm going to carry it for you. And when you're ready to carry it for somebody else, you know, you, you get the bucket back. Um, and that's the way it is sometimes with, with PTSD and trauma is that you, you can't depend on your feelings and your emotions. And I would imagine, too, as much as I brought the God component into this conversation, that that can also be a double-edged sword in that you look at the imagery that we see through the church, throughout Scripture, Absolutely. our Heavenly Father, God the Father. Yes. And yet, what do you do if a child, for example, comes home to a father every night who is abusive, who is an alcoholic, who you see slapping your mother around, yep. drinking, beating the kids up, yep. maybe engaged mm-hmm. in sexual abuse within the family? All of a sudden now, your ability to relate to a loving, kind, exactly. grace-filled Heavenly Father versus the mess of this guy. That's right. All and of I, a sudden now, that that picture is a difficult one to relate to warped. because the loving father, you got to yes. be kidding me. Right. I think the church needs to be speaking honestly and openly on these issues. We need to be talking about all mental health issues, honestly, from the top down. I'm so glad what uh, Rick and Kay Warren are doing at Saddleback and other churches following suit in talking about uh, mental illness it's not a it's not a taboo subject but often it's not discussed in in churches to say that um th- this is something that um almost 10 percent of people who are sitting in our pews and in our congregations are struggling with with trauma and ptsd if you do the math on i don't know what size church people may be going to but in my church that's a lot of people that's a lot of people and and they're struggling even with coming through the door and knowing where they can sit and feel safe. So so we need to confront these issues. We need to talk about them honestly and talk about the fact that you may have had that experience or are having that experience in your home. It hurts, but that's a lie and a deception. That's not, that's not who God is. And that God didn't 
perpetrate this abuse upon you either. Um, well, and not only is that not who God is, but as you mentioned a moment ago, Wanda, that's not who you are either. No, right. no, no, no. We, we tend to sometimes yes. in in this failed methodology of, of creating a coping mechanism to survive, we accept blame and take on blame and, and reassign blame in so many ways that is so far disconnected from reality. reality. Yes. And yet in the moment, well, that's all you know to do. Yes. Right. Oh, and, yeah. we, and we wanted this book to be kind of a safe place for not ju- not just women, but pr- it's probably primarily women because we tend to speak mostly in those settings and often in prison for for women to ask God tough questions. Where were you when I was being thrown down the basement stairs? Where were you when I lost my when I lost my child? Where were you when we all ask those questions? Sometimes we're afraid to say them out loud because we think that we insult God, but we don't. Um, and the book doesn't provide easy glib answers. What it does is it's like every every devotional is a letter from a woman who's or a person who's heartbroken in some circumstance to God, just pouring out her heart. It's like a, a prayer to God. And then the second half of each devotion is just a love letter back from God. Most of it's just um, straight scripture, just paraphrased a little bit. And they're not... They're not, like I said, glib answers. They're um, just expressing the character of God and his love for us. In this truth-telling process, we'll call it, is it important to allow yourself to admit how you're feeling? And I ask that question because I would imagine a lot of people that have gone through post-traumatic stress disorder have spent such a long time trying to stuff it down, push it away, disconnect from the pain of it all, that not only is there a lot of deflection and denial going on, but even to admit, I'm angry at God. Oh, yes. Even I mean, to that's admit, what, yes. you know what? Oh, yeah. I go to church every day and I smile and I put on mm-hmm. a cheery face, but mm-hmm. that's not how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, for instance, there, there's, there are statistics that demonstrate the, the trauma that is associated with the loss of children before birth, so for miscarriage and those kinds of things. Yet that's that's often diminished in our culture, and it's just like, well, you can try again, or, oh, you already have two you children have at two. home, or whatever. But even in, in a situation, like, we need to have the opportunity for people to grieve, for us to inventory our losses. Sometimes when somebody has extreme abusive experiences, you will grow up and achieve adulthood having missed out on many things. And you need to be able to look back and grieve and say, honestly, this is what I have lost. And to be able to to be in that place and, and speak honestly with God and even with other people about you know, God can take it. He knows already, you know, and so uh, that was always where I, I, I was. I was, I wouldn't talk to anyone because I was ashamed of the way I was, I felt, because I felt deeply disappointed in God. And, but on the other hand, I also have a, a very deep faith. And that's like my, the most important thing in my life, you know, so it was a very confusing time and place for me. 
And um, it's funny how we'll get shut down by shame. Mm-hmm. And yet, the first example we see of that is the parents, so to speak, of humankind. Good old Adam and Eve. And (laughs) they tried to hide their shame, and yet God fully knew. God knew. Mm -hmm. Let's pause on that part. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Shelley Beach and Wanda Sanchez in studio. Love Letters from the Edge, as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 